Hello and welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. A huge engine failure, it appears, for Erica. The smoke funneling out of the back of the car. Stanfield drives by. On this episode, it's the Masters of the Valley, Tommy DeLago, Mike Green, and Guido Antonelli, winning crew chiefs all. And it's Trip Tatum for the first time in his career. 370 flat, 330 miles an hour. We're going to get great behind-the-scenes stories of their victories at the Thunder Valley Nationals and New England Nationals in Bristol. Bobby Bodie's 074, and he blows the body off the car. Going through the finish line stripe, Bobby maintains control of the automobile. This is the NHRA Insider. Number 16 is going to take out number one. He left on a, by a day and a half. Both Manson Hines bikes are out. And it is crazy town at Pro Stock Motorcycle. Hey, everybody. Brian Loans here with the NHRA Insider Podcast. After an absolutely incredible weekend in Bristol, Tennessee, we got a lot to talk about. Today's show, I'm calling Masters of the Valley. We're going to have Tommy DeLago and Mike Green on their historic weekend of winning both the New England Nationals and the Thunder Valley Nationals, along with the Mission Too Fast, Too Tasty Challenge, as well as Dean Antonelli. Crew chief, of course, for Ron Caps of the Napa GR Supra, who took victory on Sunday at the Thunder Valley Nationals. We're going to have great inside conversations with these crew chiefs, talking about their approach, their negotiation, and their uh, all-conquering wins at one of the most challenging tracks we race at on the entire tour. This one was just, we we knew it was going to be great going in. We knew it was going to be hardcore going in. We knew it was going to be draining and exhausting going in. But we also knew that we were going to come out of this thing with some really great stories. We were going to see points shifting. We were going to see teams rising, teams falling. We were going to see teams that maybe surprised us to some degree. And we got everything we could have asked for. Um, On the New England National side, obviously, that was a top fuel and funny car pro mod race. Those are the three main factors there. And when you look at what's going on with Nitro Funny Car and Top Fuel and how that race played out on Friday and Saturday, Justin Ashley, of course, wins in Top Fuel, uh, does so with a a car that we're going to hear about from uh, Mike and Tommy and how they had to battle through on Saturday to get that win. Bob Tasker III picks up a win in Bristol for the New England Nationals, and it was the most emotionally charged top-end interview maybe I've ever heard Bob give. He broke up when he talked about the racetrack, and he talked about his history there, talked about what it meant to have one of those Wallies in their family legacy. Bob will be on the show next week, and we'll talk about that New England Nationals victory. So that was Saturday, and that was brilliant. Um, Justin Bond, of course, picked up the win in Pro Mod as he has been doing so successfully over the course of the 2023 season. The guy is absolutely killing it out there in that Bahrain 1 Camaro, the JBS equipment car. So I don't want to discount that story either because uh, we had wild pro mod action. Of course, Paul Diagrapon had that horrendous crash that he was able to uh, be back at the racetrack the next morning from, thankfully. And uh, that was, you know, that was a horrible thing to see. We had a bunch of replacement drivers in the category this weekend, um, filling in for various people. Tony Wilson, who was driving the car Jason Lee normally drives, um, made him a final in his first ever NHRA start for the New England Nationals and then uh, nearly did it again for the final round of the Thunder Valley Nationals. So he had a great, uh, great weekend. Todd Tudrow was in the seat. All kinds of fun storylines there as well. Then we got to Sunday and having gone through qualifying and then simultaneous qualifying and eliminations and then simultaneous qualifying eliminations and mission too fast too tasty action sunday presented us with this glorious opportunity to simply just do something normal for once in our lives over the course of the weekend and run a race run a four-round eliminator with pro stock motorcycle car top fuel and funny car as well as fuel tech pro mod presented by type a motorsports and it was almost like the pro stock car and motorcycle competitors were like, all right, we need to put on a show here, too, because uh, these guys have had this, the limelight for the last day and a half. Now it's our turn to shine. And did they ever? Um, we talk about what happened in the course of this race. We talk about how Erica Enders wins in pro stock and wins um, in a very Erica Enders way. Absolute nails all day long drove the car with the same level of acumen and confidence she always does and punches her ticket in the winner's circle and puts a vice grip uh, over the lips of all the donkeys on the internet that were talking a whole bunch of garbage. Um, it is, in so many ways, a massive team there 
we have seen some cars on that elite motorsports team have stronger starts than others of course erica did not have a strong start by any measure um but this win puts her in the top 10 of points certainly puts them back right back on the map of conversation and it may not put them on the map of conversation to say she's going to come back and win every race and and she's going to be uh you know regular season points leader going into going into the countdown but it puts them back in the conversation of every weekend not going oh man are they going to go out in the first round or the second round now we get to look at that car and think okay it's a threat it's a threat again it's the same way we looked at it for many years and now we're back to doing the same thing in a pro stock motorcycle um who saw that one coming in essence you know gage herrera is going to lose at some point it's going to happen it's drag racing there's no such thing as a perfect season some people have come close but there's no such thing as a perfect season and it was and with respect to steve johnson an unlikely outcome that gage would be red against steve johnson in the final and ultimately uh, the runner-up steve johnson the winner of the thunder valley nationals a scrappy hard-fought steve johnson-esque win motorcycle was where it needed to be he as a rider was where he needed to be and that's the type of thing that a veteran can do in this sport is when the odds are not in your favor when the numbers say that maybe you shouldn't even bother rolling up next to him for the final you do and you attack and you win and so that is a great moment for steve johnson to be the guy who gets to you know say he was the the one who shot liberty valance so to speak he was the guy that stopped the monster in its tracks and that's not to say that it wasn't um a complete uh ending of the monster's reign in terms of gage herrera i would certainly not expect performance wise for him to fall off his level of experience in and outside of nhra um allows me to believe that a final round red light is as as frustrating as that certainly is for him is something that uh as i make this show on tuesday morning after the race he ain't even thinking about anymore so it'll be a fun storyline to chase in norwalk as will erica's you know the this this kind of like reestablishment uh for erica and now we get to see how this guy deals with a disappointing race result we've, we've not seen that yet um that's been the fun it will be the fun of the gage herrera season is is watching him on this big platform he's on with that vance and heinz team do the stuff that every racer has to do and we get to watch him and, and really maybe to his detriment we get to put a microscope on him because he's been so good and he's been so entertaining so when something happens it's we're going to pay attention to it to see what the net effect is like what is the net effect of that red light to his performance in norwalk so we're going to be watching all of that stuff in two weeks we do have a weekend off coming up uh, the nhra camping world series tour does i'm actually going to the wally parks uh, nostalgia nationals down in bowling green kentucky and i'll be down there next weekend um uh hanging out with don garlitz and doing a bunch of neat stuff with that race uh, so if you're going to be down in bowling green find me we'll chat about stuff but uh, certainly love nostalgia drag racing love the history of the sport uh, those nostalgia races at Bowling Green uh, were instrumental in me getting a job with the big tour of NHRA and ultimately led me to uh, creating this podcast. That, that's the end result. The podcast is the pinnacle of all of it. No. So if you're going to Bowling Green, I hope you are. Uh, it's going to be a great weekend. Camping World Series tour takes a deep breath and then we go into the Summit Racing Equipment Nationals in Norwalk, Ohio. You know, there are so many things, different things you can talk about about the Bristol weekend. Great fan turnout. Uh, Sunday, of course, the rains came in. We had a three and a half hour delay. Uh, Got to give credit where it's due in two places there. NHRA's decision to move the start time of the event up from noontime to 10, which is always a difficult thing to do because you've promoted the race for a year, you've sold tickets, you've done everything, and people are expecting they're going to see a noontime start, and that's how it's going to go. But there are things that supersede the schedule, and the forecast was doom and gloom for the afternoon. And NHRA did not want to get back into a situation they were in in Epping where we got into this feedback loop of bad weather and obviously allowed us to do nothing. So starting at 10, we still didn't complete the event until about 7.30 at night. And that is without our Lucas Oil Drag Racing Series competitors. All of those racers were run to completion on Saturday night. So that is, again, another point of credit I must give to Race Control and Race Administration and the racers loved it too. I was talking to a bunch of them as we finished up our work on Saturday. I was bringing my stuff back down in my car and I was walking through the staging lanes 
and they were appreciative. By and hold, the racers that were out there that were still in competition, they're like, they're going to finish us tonight. That's great. Because the, the honest truth is, if we had had a full slate of sportsman racing and our professional categories on Sunday, it wouldn't have gotten done. Specifically, I'd, I'd have to guess the sportsman racing would have been deferred or they would have been having to run uh, various rounds at different divisionals or regionals where people are going to be. It turns into a big, giant kind of suboptimal situation, let's call it that. So to have those races completed, those classes completed on Saturday night, allowed people to get their national event in, get to lock in and finish the thing in a day, and then not have the inconvenience of being stuck in the rain, just waiting and hoping for a shot to get down the racetrack on Sunday. Safety Safari turned the track around as usual, three-and-a-half-hour rain delay. Uh, once the rain stopped, they were on it with all the equipment, everything they, they had, and, and lo and behold, the track came back to exactly what it had been before the rain, which was very good. Um, we saw flirtations with records. We saw the top fuel speed record tied by Brittany Forrest, and then we saw it decimated by Justin Ashley in the final. We'll talk to Mike and Tommy about that. And, you know, we saw Pro Stock motorcycles coming within a breath of speed records. We saw the Pro Stock cars, uh, as far as EFI era goes, running very quickly for, for Bristol. And the bikes, you know, it's only the third time they've ever raced there. So the, the data book for them is still relatively thin as compared to everybody else. Just not... Not anything you can't really be happy with coming out of the Thunder Valley Nationals from a media fan enthusiast perspective. From a team perspective, there's obviously stuff you can be unhappy with. First round losses you can be unhappy with. Short finishes you can be unhappy with. Parts attrition you can be unhappy with. But when we look from the outside into that race rather than from the inside out, it was a really... um, it was a really spectacular event. So thanks to the fans in Bristol for showing up in force. Saturday, the place was a blowout. And uh, Sunday was very strong, despite the fact that every weather guy in a 100-mile range was saying, oh, it's going to rain, it's going to rain, it's going to rain. And yeah, that uh, typically turns into human repellent uh, when the forecast turns in that direction. One last thing I want to talk about before um, I get Tommy and Mike Green on the line is just a, a little bit of a rant about something that has, has struck me as annoying for a while, and then I finally decided, you know what, I just gotta, I gotta get this out of me. I gotta get this out of me, and then we can just move on with our lives. And it's a rant against something that outwardly seems kind of positive, but in my opinion, is negative to the sport. Um, not just NHRA, it's negative to the whole sport. And there is this mantra, you know, like, People say there's a mantra among among a lot of people, and, and I've been guilty of it. I've done it. I've consciously not done it for a long time. But there's this mantra about, you know, drag racing's a dying sport. And and you throw it back at those people by showing them a great crowd shot. You show them a great thing. And, oh, yeah, drag racing's not dead. Drag racing's not dying. Uh, this looks pretty good for a dying sport. We see it really all over the place. And it's horrible. It's a dumb thing. And I say that with respect to the people that do say it because they're some of my friends. But I say this because no other sport does this, for starters. When weekday attendance is down for Major League Baseball teams, no one takes a photo of the seats and says, baseball's dying. When uh, a professional sports series doesn't have the highest rated finals they've ever had, people don't say, well, that's it. NHL's dying uh, when any sort of thing that you want to prosper and grow, nobody takes the tack of it's not dying to make it prosper and grow. And the thing that annoys me most about this is that we're yelling it at ourselves. This is a message that isn't being yelled out because the Washington Post wrote a front page story that said drag racing is dying or that there's there was some investigative report done that determined the sport of drag racing was withering on the vine and it's uh, you know it's been submitted by the government or something the only reason we're yelling this at each other is because most of the time it comes from old people that are embittered or, or, or bitter about the sport or their lack of involvement of it anymore or how it's evolved and changed And so all they see is, well, this ain't the way it was when I was a kid. This is dying off because they're not looking at any other place other than the stuff that they used to look at. And that's the point of this. 
the point of this is when some, and again, it's typically an old person, gets on social media, take the, take the keys from Facebook away from grandpa if he was a drag racer maybe, I don't know, Twitter, whatever. They get there and they say, well, sport's dying. Sport's going to be gone in five years. Meanwhile, across the nation, there are more races going on simultaneously on a typical Sunday right now in drag racing of various types of forms and fashions that people hadn't even invented yet when these guys are running their mouth about the sport going away. It's not just the NHRA. This sport is humongous and it is strong. And the argument that we make among ourselves, again, it's an inward facing argument. We're yelling into a, a cavern of ourselves. We're not yelling this out to people who matter or influence the sport. We're yelling at ourselves. It's just ridiculous. Like it's it's not it, it, it's a battle worth fighting. You don't want the, you don't want a negative impression. But at the same time, it is not it should not be fought with the mantra that drag racing is not dying. If I'm a prospective business, if I'm a business owner, if I'm a corporation, if I'm anything, and maybe I want to get involved in motorsports, maybe I want to get involved in drag racing, and I start looking around, and maybe I hire some people to start poking around, and who, you know, who should I get involved with? What should I do? And the constant drumbeat of those investigations is drag racing isn't dying. What the hell impression does that send anybody? A terrible impression. It's not, hey, drag racing is growing. Drag racing is uh, flourishing. You got no prep series all around the country. You got these killer events at little racetracks. You got half track and back track racing. You have import face-off series events that are drawing thousands and thousands of kids. You have nostalgia drag racing. You have every, you have big money bracket racing. You have all these independent regional series that run. You have about a half a dozen pro mod series that run on any given weekend around this country. You can go down a list you can buy cars from the factory that run in the tens right now. You could buy, and I know you maybe a lot of you hate them. You could buy electric cars that run eights. And so, when some crotchety old person barfs out an opinion that drag racing is dying, it's not a counter. It's not an equal counterbalance to shout them down. When they say drag racing is dying, it's not an equal counterbalance to shout them down and say it is dying. Let that person have that opinion and let the world change around them. And if you're going to promote the sport, promote the sport. Don't promote the sport as not dying. Promote the sport on the positive. When, when, someone, is, uh, when someone is very fit, we don't say, well, that guy's not fat. Look at him. He's not fat. You say, wow, that guy's in great shape. That girl's in great shape. When someone's six foot ten, we don't say, well, that girl's not short or that guy's not short. We say the person is tall. So the idea that we're saying drag racing's not dying, it's not a rallying cry. It should never be a rallying cry for our sport. That should not even be in, in whatever. It's not dying, of course. It is a factual statement, but it cannot be a rallying cry for our sport you don't stand around and talk about the things you love by saying it's not dying. You don't do that for anything else. I challenge you to think of anything else in your life that you would explain that you really love and enjoy to do. You would not lead off by saying it's not dying. You would talk about the things you enjoy about it, how popular it is, why you like it, what are the things that drive you forward. You, you would not sit there and, 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 and waste your time defending a trope that is completely untrue so I don't I, I'm done using the phrase I hope everybody else is and I hope that when you think about it if I haven't just bored you to tears but if you think about what I'm saying the message and direction of it it's just it's it's a it's a waste of our own energy of a, as a sport because again we're not yelling at an outward entity that's telling us this we're yelling at people who are already in drag racing it is an, it is we're just shooting at each other let those people that want to say that let them say it 
and let him stare out the window and watch the clouds go by and not have any freaking clue about the strength and size, the diversity, and the fact that this sport on a participant level, on a competition level, offers more opportunity for more people to do it in more different ways at more different places and at more different times than has ever existed since its inception in the 1950s. Those are facts. It is healthy. It is growing. But for the love of God, let's all stop yelling about the fact that it's not dying. And rant. All right. All right. I'm glad I got that off my chest. I'm glad I said it. Thank you for listening. If you haven't fast forwarded past it, you've missed just glorious ranting. So that's that. When we come back, it will be Mike Green. It will be Tommy DeLago, the brains behind the Phillips Connect Top Fuel Dragster and its historic weekend at Bristol Dragway. Don't go anywhere. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the NHRA Insider Podcast. And what a wild weekend we had in Bristol, Tennessee. And there was one team that ran the table all the way across the board. I wanted to talk to the two guys that are responsible on the mechanical end of that race car for doing it. I have Tommy DeLago and Mike Green from the Phillips Connect Top Fuel team on the line. Mike, how you doing this morning? Doing great. How about you, Tommy? Yeah, I'm doing awesome. How, how can you not be? Yeah, this was uh, this was one for the history books, literally. I mean, it's something that really nobody else has ever done before. And, Mike, I kind of want to start with you because we talk a lot about, you know, the, the Bristol racetrack. We know that there's bumps out there. We know that it can get, you know, incredibly hot and get very treacherous to get down. It, was there an overriding factor that allowed you guys to be as successful as you were in consistently getting that card on the racetrack, especially on Sunday? Uh, I think the biggest thing is experience, you know, that uh, um, both of us, Tommy and I, have both raced there quite a bit, you know, and uh, had some success there, and we were lucky enough to win there last year. We we learned a lot about the racetrack then because we made, you know, eight runs last year there. So, uh, so, yeah, I think that was a big help, you know, just being uh, the experience of racing there a lot and uh, knowing that racing surface. And in terms of, of track temperature and the fact we had a lot of clouds, especially on Sunday, did that take a little bit of the pressure off uh, in terms of having to make critical tuning decisions? Does that give you more kind of maybe a consistent window to work in? Yeah, I think when Tommy and I talked, it, it kind of gave us more confidence because we just weren't that confident in our setup and the track. Even on, you know, on uh, Saturday, you know, we ended up winning the race and everything went good, but we we weren't that confident but so yeah when the track was cooler i think it i think it helped us out a little bit for sure what do you think tom i definitely think the confidence level is what it was all about even though we had experience you know i mean it was a great weekend i wouldn't say it was a dominant one i mean we sure. we, we had some luck going with us too you know we have an, we've an awesome driver which also helps us um especially when the tracks get a little warmer or whatever help us with not having to be as confident we can be like okay well let's not push it here because we don't trust the track we've got justin you know yeah so uh i think that plays into it too but definitely like mike said the confidence level uh that plays a big part on saturday tommy the the the, the crew really had to earn their bones out there you guys had obviously very tight turns it turns the whole weekend long and uh it wasn't exactly the easiest day you guys really had to kind of go to work and and obviously the work was done full flawlessly well, uh, you know, Mike Green, Dustin Davis, um, Justin Ashley have assembled a group of guys that are the crew on this team that are just unmatched. I mean, these guys, some of them have championship DNA and, and experience already, which helps them in situations like that. But uh, just a talented team that has great chemistry, and you, you just uh, – that was one, of the, one. That was the other reason, other than working with Mike Green, that I wanted to come work over here because they have such an awesome crew. I didn't want to miss the opportunity of working with these guys. Well, it makes sense, and they they certainly pulled through uh, over the course of Saturday, and, and then on Sunday it was just a, it was like a master class. But you know, Tommy, when we talk about the Saturday and and you know you guys making effectively an extra run that that semifinal run that didn't necessarily count toward qualifying, but it went through toward the mission deal and certainly moved you to the final. Um, how much does one extra run help? I mean, we, we talk a lot about, you know, getting shots at the racetrack and, and all these opportunities. You're not in a situation where you could go up there and test, right, because you're trying to win the round. But how much does any extra run over the course of one weekend help? I'm, I'm, I had hard to put, like, a, a, a numbered value on that. I mean, obviously, 
not every run helps you, but yeah. you, you wish they would. I, it had to help <laughs> some. I don't know how much. Maybe maybe Mike can answer that question better. I mean, for me, I, I don't even know how many runs we made on Saturday. I mean, I was running around, you know, <laughs> talking with Mike Green, mixing fuel and, and, you know, trying to help the guys make sure we've got, you know, we haven't had a scramble drill like that where everything's kind of blown up and have to fix everything. And Mike, I think Mike hasn't had that happen in two years. So we weren't quite experienced on having to do that in quite a while. So it, it was, it kind of became a blur and just, uh, it just kind of happened. Was any of that Mike on, on your side of it, you know, coming into Sunday, having made those four runs on Saturday, it's a different, it's a different situation, right? I mean, it's a different or three runs on Saturday. I should say it's a different situation than even we've gotten used to over the last couple of years with most of our races only have three qualifying runs period. So to get three in one day, that had to have helped some coming into Sunday, right? Yeah, no, I think it did. I think, uh, like times says, you, you want every run to help you, you know, and I, I think, it, I think it did, you know, the guys, uh, you know, I think the biggest thing of doing that is just another run on them and another run on Saturday before you have to prepare for Sunday, you know, but yeah, we had a, we had a, uh, an issue. So we had some motor and blower trauma and, uh, you know, and I <laughs> told the guys, I told the guys that you have to, uh, you have to stay prepared for this because it had been a couple of years since I think it was Norwalk two years ago that we heard an engine so wow. or a blower so but I kept telling them it's coming yeah right <laughs> there and and they they took that to heart they were really prepared and when it happened they didn't miss a beat they had everything ready you know just you know like every team does you yes. got to prepare for those kind of situations and uh, they were really prepared and did a great great job. If there's one thing I look at from Saturday to Sunday with the performance uh, that, that you guys put on was that on Sunday, it, it seemed really systematic. Like you, you stepped the car up every round. It went from a 76 to a 75 and then a 72 in the semis and then a 71 in the final. Saturday wasn't like that. And and was that simply based con- on conditions or was there other factors involved? Because Sunday was like it seemed like you guys were just perfectly picking away at it whereas saturday like you said the blower and motor trauma kind of changes the game a little bit there but why was sunday so much more maybe surgical looking than saturday i think saturday obviously the track conditions were different and uh we had, we'd spun the tires that first run saturday yeah. and that caused the, the the damage so uh so once you smoke the tires your next run you pretty much try to do anything to not spin the tires because that'll give you the best chance to win. Yeah. So we probably uh, detuned it a little too much, you know, and slowed down a little too much, but it was good enough to get get the win, you know, and uh, and uh, and that gave us a little more confidence to come back in the final and and run just good enough to win. Obviously, our, uh, our teammate over there, Zippy and and Tony, they made a great run here and uh, almost beat us, but we were lucky enough that uh, Justin got off the line first and uh, we ended up with the win. You know, Tommy, this Mission Too Fast, Too Tasty program, when it was getting rolled out at the beginning of the year, on paper it seemed pretty good. You know, it seemed kind of interesting, something new. Um, From my perspective, I think from a lot of fans' perspective, it really has been awesome. Um, And and obviously it was one part of the the three-part story you guys had over the weekend, but even on a typical weekend when we have this this new too fast too tasty challenge, it, it, does it change the dynamic in the pit area um, in terms of that that kind of intensity for final qualifying rounds as much as it does maybe in the grandstands because the fans are really eating this thing up. I think it probably changes more in the fan stands or the, in the grandstands. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, if I were to say that it doesn't affect us all, I'd be lying. I mean, sure. it has to a little bit, right? Sure. I mean, we we. I know Mike Green and I try to look at it as just another qualifying run, but I do I do know that when we get into the final of that, that we're like, okay, now let's put a little more importance on this and, and, and try to get these points because they're willing to give points away. I mean, even in the year that I won a championship final car, I want every, if they're giving give away points, we got to try to get everyone we can. Yeah, and, and listen, and these are the good points. I mean, these are the big ones. These come after after the U.S. Nationals, and and Mike, you know this maybe as good or better than anybody. You know, being able to put as many of those in your back pocket to, when you when we move into the countdown is huge. I mean, we talk about these things, and fans say, "Well, what difference is three points or six points or let's say you recruit ten or twelve going into the countdown?" That's enormous. That, that's absolutely enormous. 
Yeah, and, it could, and if you don't get those points, it could be actually a, a, not getting six of those points can be a twelve point swing. Yeah, based. I mean, if you if you don't have any, and somebody else get somebody else is going to get those points if you don't get them. So it's 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 important to get every point that they are willing to give you. And Mike, you know, we we Bruno talked to you on the starting line after the uh, Sunday afternoon after you guys turned on that that final wind light with the you know track record speed and everything else, and it was pretty cool. And and my you know perspective of it because I I could see a lot of like almost relief. Uh, there was like there was a bunch of emotion coming out of you. You had a big smile, of course, as well. You should have, but you had to have been pretty well exhausted by the end of that whole experience. Yeah, no, it was. It's uh, you know I think it's more mental than physical sure. exhaustion i don't work very much you know <laughs> all the guys tommy tommy d and all the guys are out there uh you know making the difference and putting the car together right and make sure it's all right i mean obviously tommy helps so much with tuning the car you know also but he's also out there you know just helping the guys and making sure that uh so he's just a huge part of this winning thing but but yeah you know it's a you know before when we found out this was going to happen I even told the guys, I go, this happened to me one time before in 2014, you know, and we were lucky enough to uh, to go to Dallas and win the Charlotte race on Saturday and win the Dallas race on Sunday, and it propelled us to win a championship that year. So, uh, so yeah, I was kind of – and I, I've had a lot of success at Bristol, so uh, it was all positive going there, you yeah. know. So, it, you know, it, we just had a lot of good positive thoughts going there, and it it really – you know, everybody did a great job, and it really worked out for us. The, what do you attribute What do you attribute the 336-mile-an-hour final round speed to? Because that was – that was awesome. I mean, as as difficult as we know this place is and, and how much skill it takes to get a car down there, let alone to do it and bump the track speed record by two mile an hour, that was something. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, we kept, the, the air kept changing and uh, we kept chasing it and chasing it. And the semifinals, we ran 330 and, uh, and uh, Justin has shut the car off about 50 feet before the finish line okay. on accident, you know, but... Uh, but uh, when I told him, he goes, are you kidding me? And so, <laughs> and so we, you know, it probably went a couple miles an hour faster that on that run, you know. And then, you know, we got back there and looked at it. And Tommy and I both goes, well, we, we got to put more power in it. You know, we just got to keep putting power in it. We put more timing, more tune-up in it. So, uh, you know, it all worked out. Ran pretty fast at half track. And, uh, you know, in that center air up there, you know, you can, uh, the wing can get through the air pretty good. So, uh, so yeah, it was a good it was a good good run for us, for sure. Yeah, nice exclamation point to cap it off with. And, and you know, Tommy, obviously you brought up Justin earlier. And and in a situation where, let's talk about Saturday, in that situation where you have the engine damage, you're going to come back, and, and you know that you're going to be at, not tentative, but at least a little bit more conservative on that next ensuing run to make sure you don't have a, a repetition of the problem. How much comfort is there in – maybe saying to Justin, Hey man, just to let you know, like we're not going up there with the, uh, with all the guns loaded here. You're going to, you know, you, you're going to do your job too. I don't even know if you have to have that conversation with that guy. He's, he's nails. He, I mean, they, I've only met a, maybe one other person in my life that uh, is even keel as him. And, and I mean, the guy, the guy's, he's so smooth and calm and cool. He's, he's basically, you know, I know he doesn't want enough championships yet, but he's, he's kind of Joe Montana, man. He's, Never down, never up. Very systematic, very calculated, and uh, on his job. And I tell you, it uh, we couldn't do all this without him. Couldn't do all this without the guys. Um, the, everybody's everybody's personality is just awesome. Sure. I mean, for instance, the night before I tell the F we won Saturday, I go, you know, it's almost impossible to win again tomorrow, right, guys? <laughs> and, and and they look at me and they go, so you're saying there's a chance, right? <laughs> That's the mentality of our guys right there, right? They, they they don't have any give up in them. That's what you want, and that's how our, that's how Justin is too. They're everybody's just focused at the same task at hand, and it's just a very harmonious, lot of teamwork, man. And Mike, what was you got to enjoy the moment? You win Saturday, you got to enjoy the moment. You know, you got to put your head back right down to the grindstone the next day. So, it, 
what is the difference between the Saturday night, yay, we won celebration, oh, we have to race again Sunday, versus the Sunday night celebration, yay, we don't race for two weeks in Norwalk? I mean, and your team is a team of professionals, but at the same time, in sports, we see it happen all the time. Some team has a, a highly emotional win in a playoff series, and they come back the next game or the next day, and they're totally flat. So in terms of you and, and that whole team, how was Saturday night different than a typical Sunday night win celebration? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, we did celebrate. We sure. did a little quick winter circle and came back and, uh, you know, and then had to get back to work, you know, because it was later in the evening already. And we knew they moved the start of the race from 12 to 10 yep. in the morning. So it wasn't going to be a lot of sleep for anybody. So the guys, uh, you know, we took some quick pictures, went back there, and they they really got back to work. And, uh, you know, as soon as Tommy and I, we go in and we look at the run, evaluate, you know, everything. And then I immediately go, all right, here's the track temperature you're going to be for 10 o'clock in the morning. Here's what the air conditions are going to be. And we yeah. start thinking about that first round run Saturday night, you know. But uh, the main difference between the two, uh, you know, celebrations you might call them, I think is maybe the second one had a little alcohol involved. <laughs> Well-deserved, of course. Absolutely. And, you know, let's take this going forward now. We go to Norwalk. It's uh, it's one of the biggest races of the year. And, and what I think is funny is uh, I know from our perspective on the you know TV media side, we always kind of look at Norwalk as kind of a, a mini U.S. Nationals. It's a grinder of a race. Um, but we come off of this weekend and you look at Norwalk, you're like, yeah, <laughs> you know, maybe it ain't going to be that bad because what we just what we just saw happen over over last weekend. So, Tommy, um because Norwalk tends to be one of these races where we're racing late at night and there's always something going on, this is going to be a nice segue into that for your team, like making all these runs, battle-hardened, and you come into what is typically a grinder of a race set up to go. Well, I mean, I don't look at Norwalk that way because I've I've never had any success at Norwalk, so <laughs> yeah, it's on my family. So we're we're going to have to change that. And we lost. We put a cylinder out there. We hardly ever put cylinders out there. First round last year and lost first round. So we definitely got some fish to fry there, and that's definitely a, a good motivator. I, I think uh, you know losing teaches you how to win. So I think we're still focused in. We're not coming up. We're not, we're not emotional. Uh, I think you know a lot of the guys and all of us have had enough experience to where we appreciate what we're able to accomplish, but we also stay grounded and focused on the long game which is the end of the season you know these are all just the uh stepping stones to get to the end game and mike with all the drivers you've worked with over your career and whether it was when you were crewing on ormsby's car or of course winning championship with with tony schumacher um what elements of justin do you see coming out of guys like an Ormsby or guys like a Schumacher? Because Tony, when in 2018 or 2019, Tony Schumacher worked with me and Pedregon in the booth for a bunch of races when he was back out looking for a ride. And, and he talked to us a lot about how, you know, he was always very concerned about being precise, not necessarily. And he, he told us flat out, he said, I was never the best average reaction time guy. He said, but I, I'm, I'm concerned about being precise in operating the car. Justin seems to have that as well, but talk to me. Talk to me about some of the elements that Justin has in his driving that maybe aren't as obvious to the common fan at home. Yeah, I think that you can compare them quite a bit because Tony was the same way. Tony was never getting the car and banging the throttle and you know trying to pump himself up and and you know yeah. drink energy drinks or coffee or whatever. Yeah. You know, Tony. Just get in there, do his job, you know, pretty even keel. You know, when when Tony got out of the car, he wasn't breathing hard or, you know, like some people are, you yeah. know. And uh, Justin's kind of the same way, you know. He'll uh, have a little snack, drink some water or whatever. And, you know, he's just pretty darn calm like Tony was. I think that Justin's still learning to drive all that other stuff that Tony would talk about. Uh, you know, the precision of the burnout, backing the car up, the backing the car up far enough behind the starting line so you can pull forward, be perfectly straight, or aim the car where you want to aim it, you know, yeah. uh, driving it down the track, you know, uh, having that feel early in the run to keep it in the groove, and then, you know, how much you drive the thing going down there. You know, obviously Justin's been great and, you know, winning races, but he's learning. Every time we go down the track, he learns something. We come in, we, we'll look at video, we'll look at steering linear, we'll look at, you know, the G, lateral Gs, and 
And, you know, he'll go, okay, yeah, I felt that. Or, oh, I didn't feel that. Okay. I, I, I need to pay attention to that. So, so you know, as many as thousands of runs as Tony had, you know, Justin's yeah. still learning all that. But uh, he's, uh, for, for as many runs as he had, he's pretty darn good, I'd have to say. No, that's an absolute fact. And, and Tommy, one last thing I want to ask you about is, you know, we we talk about this 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 camping world drag racing season really in two parts. We talk about this regular season, then of course we talk about the last six races where we will determine who actually is a, a world champion at the end of the year. And so the experience of your countdown last year and the experience of the regular season this year, I'm guess I'm asking how much did one lead to the other? And then when you get to that countdown how much is last year's countdown experience going to help the team in 2023? Well, we're going to go backwards. The last question there, how much are you going to count towards it? We don't know. The proof will be in the pudding at the end of the year, right? I yeah. mean, you, you kind of make a, a an estimated guess on what your weak spots were at the end of the year and, yep. and try to address those and, <clears throat> and try to have a, be, a better approach and build on the data that you had from the previous year. But there's no guarantees, you know. I mean, there's it, all these guys are trying to do the same thing. Sure. Every every crew, every team, they're all professionals. I mean, we're you know competing with the best guys in the world. You know, um, to be able to even win a race is, is is really hard. So let alone a championship. But we, Mike Green and had and I talked at the end of the year. We we looked at a few things that we thought that we needed to address. We addressed those and. And we're not there yet, but we're hoping that will will help us be a little bit more uh, consistent and competitive during the countdown than, than what we were last year. But we'll, we'll find out then. Absolutely. Proof will be in the pudding. And, Mike, a final question for you. With all the decades of experience you have in this class, and it's like the cliche thing to say, oh, well, the competition's never been better. I have a very difficult time even looking back in, in, in historical research and looking back at old stats and numbers. I have a very difficult time not – truthfully saying it's never been harder to win or the competition level's never been higher than it is right now. It's, it's, it's ridiculous in top fuel. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think everybody, you hear it all the time from drivers and crew chiefs, you know, I think it's absolutely, uh, absolutely true. You know, when, when I came here the first year and, uh, you know, went to work for Dustin and Justin actually and Dustin Davis and, uh, we ran the car and we had a little success and it's the end of the year and I'd already, talk to Tommy a little bit, I go, if we're going to have a championship team, we need more help because the competition is going to be so tough yeah. and it's going to get harder and harder, you know, and with Austin Proc coming back and just, you know, it just, yep. it's not getting easier. So bringing Tommy on was just an absolute right decision for us to do because it brought a championship crew chief in to work with us and uh you know it's it's made a huge huge difference and uh you know bringing our level of of competition and being prepared and everybody uh, heading in the right direction it's made a big difference well it's great you guys uh, put on a show for the ages uh, over the course of uh about 72 hours in bristol tennessee that uh, i don't think anybody's going to be stopping to talk about for a while so congratulations on the bristol wins and i look forward to seeing you guys at norwalk and as you both said it's time to uh, it's time to put a norwalk notch in your belt right yeah thank you brian hopefully we don't stink it up over there now <laughs> <laughs> absolutely brian thanks thanks He's Tommy DeLago. He's Mike Green. They are the mindset behind a championship caliber Phillips Connect Top Fuel Dragster. We'll be back with more of the NHRA Insider Podcast with Dean Antonelli right after this. All right, so we are back here in the NHRA Insider Podcast, and I have my technically third guest, but second guest after we just spoke to Mike Green and Tommy DeLago. It is Dean Guido Antonelli, the winning crew chief from Sunday at the Thunder Valley Nationals of the Napa GR Super. Man, that was, uh, that was a heck of a day, wasn't it? Yeah, we were doing damage control from our first round lose loss and that thing, you know, on Friday night. One so. of the, yeah, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about to start with was that, and and not necessarily losing in the first round because it you know happens to everybody once in a while. But how much did that kind of change? So when you go out in the first round, you had all of Saturday as purely a qualifying day, whereas other people were qualifying and racing. So did that actually aid your ability to set the car up for Sunday, being able to surely just focus on qualifying? Yes, it, it absolutely did because we had to make a clutch disc change and it was a little bit more um, 
asking for a different application okay. than one did normally would. So when it was cool on the what you'd call you know Q2 or E1 for pepping, um, it wasn't an issue. It's when the track was getting warmer, we were struggling to get control of it. So it probably worked out better in the whole picture, especially you know we had a blessing that. Kagan and Robert both won first round of the Epping race, but they both lost second. They could have like really distanced us. So um, we we're fortunate to survive as well as we did. And so we use the Saturday strictly just as application and what changed would be most aggressive and which one would be the biggest slowdown. So, and, and, you know, and, and Ron, obviously, uh, you know, he was talking on our TV show and everywhere else that, you know, he, he had a pretty good size uh, chip of granite on his shoulder after the first round loss. And um, d- does that help? I mean, do, I'm guessing it wasn't just him. I, I'm guessing the whole team probably had a bit of a chip in their shoulder going into round one on Sunday, wanting to, uh, you know, if not seek revenge on Tasca, at least get kind of make up for, for what was a disappointing Friday night. Well, you take a, a lot of pride, you know, and, and, not losing first round and it's no knock on anybody, but you can lose second or third round and you know, usually you don't get hurt too bad, but when you lose first round, I mean, you, you could be back 60 points if the guy that's in front of you or near you goes to the final and wins. So, I mean, it's a huge, I guess, target or or, um, goal for us to try and get always first round in the books. And, like last year, Jimmy Proctor and, and Robert Height, what did they? They went all year, right? And then lose yes. first round. That yes. that is like unbelievable. No, so it really that's is. It really you know? is, and yeah, I'm, I'm. It's you know everybody talks about first round. The butterflies are always the highest then, and and you know once you get that one through, you can kind of settle in. And you know on Sunday, you guys definitely settled in. I look at the consistency of this car: three ninety six, then a three ninety four, then a ninety one, and a ninety nine in the final. And one of the things I'm interested in because your car and uh, the the top fuel car of of Delago and and Mike Green pretty good significant performance jump from round two to three uh they picked up 300s you guys picked up 300s and i'm guessing that's no coincidence what what happened in that time frame that allowed you to lean on a little harder well in our case um we actually picked it up from first round to second round um just didn't didn't know where the track would be with the rain and everything and nhra does a great job prepping it but you don't know if it's going to lift or something like that so we were a little bit on the conservative side first round just to make sure we got down through there and it was so locked in and i like i think we can press this thing pretty good (laughs) so we, we made a couple changes in the clutch and so i targeted running 91 or two and um of course, Ron's running, you know, the goat. So <laughs> John always steps it in. And so almost anybody that races John, they, they get caught up in the game. And so Ron rolled it in a little bit in the second round. So it actually ran about the same 100 slower, maybe second round. Okay. Than the 91. I probably run a mid 92. And so I'm looking at the data and it's still glued in. I'm like, well, we can take a little more right here. And so it went 91 and I, I told Ron, I said, I said, <clears throat> lane choice is important here. I said that it's cloudy and stuff. And so you can run good in the left lane, Yeah. but I don't think you can run better than about a 94 over there without driving the tires off. I said, so I'm going to press a little harder in last run because Robert's running behind us and they went 91. I said, so I'm going to try and <clears throat> run what they did and put some pressure on them to push. Yep. And I said, so, man, as thin as you can get it. And he was razor thin staging and gave us a nice 91. And I don't know. I talked to Jimmy and he said that, like, they didn't press in that area. They pretty much ran it the same. So, and that didn't even move, it didn't look like. So, yeah, it's interesting. Clutch malfunction or something. And, you know, when you have that conversation, and, you know, obviously Ron is the second winningest funny car driver of all time the guy's got you know he's the, and listen it's it's almost hilarious to have to say second because let's be honest he's he's no one's ever catching the other guy so it's almost like oh, yes, you, you, you right. can almost put him in another category and it's like so you know that relationship and of course your trust in Ron's ability go a long way because it's not something you got to coach the guy up on right it's like he understands this game maybe he doesn't understand it mechanically to the degree that you do but he understands it strategically to the way you do I'd have to guess 
Oh yeah, no, absolutely. He he normally like I don't have to have those conversations yeah. with him. He usually knows yeah. like what to do and everything, but I, you know, this time when I said it, he said, "No, I got it. I know." Yeah. I'm like, "Okay." Well, you got to you got to you got to communicate, right? Even if even if you you it's one of those things where you don't feel like you need to say it, but you got to say it just to make sure. You got to make sure everybody's on the same page. Right. Make sure we're all on the same page. So, and like he is so good too. It's like I mean, he'll come in and before I'm even downloading like maybe on a run on Friday or something like Q4, um I actually was pressing to see if we could go low. Well because the track was, I don't know, 112 or something like that. Yeah. And I, I said, trying to run like 403 or 4 and see if what we're doing is going to work isn't going to work on a 112-degree track. So it's not going to tell us anything. It'll just be a run. I said, so I'm going to press, see if we can run a low 90. And I was hauling ass right till it wasn't. And <laughs> <laughs> so he says, so when he gets out, he says, Man, that thing was hauling ass. He says, but it was it was pretty loose by the tree, so I could feel it kind of sliding a little bit. I downloaded it. Yeah, it had a little tire cup there. <laughs> so he's got such a great feel. When we roll into a Sunday, um, you know, they ran all the sportsmen out Saturday night. They moved the time frame up two hours to start Sunday morning because obviously we all knew what was coming in the afternoon. And yep. I'm sure that it's communicated or at least assumed that you're going to be on these tight turns. Is that a conversation you have with the guys uh, before you leave the track Saturday night? Just like, hey, tomorrow we're going to be we're going to be going as hard as we can go and just kind of set that tone for when everybody shows up to work on Sunday morning. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it was a great, great decision for NHRA to move it up. Yeah. And obviously they did it perfectly because second round, we we're trying to beat the noon lane. Yes. And it shut us down. Right. So, um, it was a great call by then. And so I'd looking at the weather before we left, you know, Saturday night and then Sunday morning when I'm calling the weather, I told him, I said, there's weather in the area. <clears throat> we might get two in and there's going to be rain and we might get one or two in and then there's a chance there'll be another storm i said so we're they're gonna push so we need to be, have everything prepared yeah to be as quick as we can and it worked out really good lo and behold yeah lo and behold the guys were certainly on point just watching the car go down the racetrack it's like it's it's the work is being done to the highest degree that it can be done and that's obviously a great feather in the cap for you and the entire team um you know, when we talk about transitioning from Bristol to Norwalk, and, and Bristol's a place that Ron practically owns now. He's won there seven times. It's incredible. One of the things that was interesting with Mike Green and Tommy DeLago, they're like, oh, man, we have no success in Norwalk. Like, we want, you know, they won there last year in Bristol, and Ron's won there seven times. What's your kind of uh, success record at Norwalk? Um, I think we do okay in Norwalk. I think I've won there a couple times. Um, the uh, It's we'll be able to take the off-road tires off of it and <laughs> the long travel suspension can go back in the yeah. trailer <laughs> yeah so i think everybody well all the short cars are gonna be pretty excited to get back on something more in the normal realm that we race in dragsters a oh, way more you know, forgiving right yeah yeah 300 inches big spring so they don't seem to get bothered as much but sometimes they do when and this was something I brought up with with Mike and, and Tommy about the the Mission Too Fast deal, one of which you guys have have won this year. Um, they liked it, and they did say that it does tend to change the tone of things on a Saturday when that's going on, and you're going to that final, if for no other reason that those championship points. And and you talked about you know being concerned on points position after a first round loss Friday night. But those countdown points, man, that is a that is going to be a really really interesting thing. And and honestly, you know this as well as anybody, those small numbers can can be what decides uh, a very exciting Sunday afternoon in Pomona or one that's very disappointing at the end of the year. Yeah, absolutely. Like we were really bummed about you know Epping losing the the chance at the mission points there, and I we get another shot, you know, and yeah. Norwalk to be part of that program but all those little points are just like the top three qualifying points every point matters you don't want to give anything up so um it's having that opportunity to have another shuffle and it's going to be interesting like i track what we get so far yeah and i'm sure most teams are but i don't think the fans are going to be prepared for after 
Indy and everybody thinks the points are this and then they add the points and the shuffle that it's going to create is going to make it really exciting. Oh, it's going to make it super exciting. It's a it's a, an actual an actual game changer for sure and it's going to be, you know, just kind of see how that dynamic works out. It's going to be going to be pretty great. How do you yep. feel how do you feel like you're sitting now? Obviously, you're not in the points lead to speak of, but how do you feel the way you're sitting right now? You're comfortable, you're uncomfortable, you wish you were here, there, everywhere. I mean, mechanically, clutch disc, inventory, all that stuff. How do you feel like you're positioned right now? Um, well, you're never comfortable because every time you think you're comfortable, <laughs> the nitro gods remind you who's in control. <laughs> so um, we're in pretty good shape. Uh, we got, um, we're in good shape on our clutch packs. You know, the, the disc that we changed before Epping was the last one, so I good for the rest of the year nice. and, um we have you know plenty of parts you know runs with napa and toyota we've got great funding so we're our inventory is sacked and hopefully we don't hurt a lot of stuff and just work on application instead of fixing and regarding that disc change is that kind of when you had it mapped out because i'm assuming that has to be a very specific time frame or window that you want to work these changes through just for the reasons you mentioned so was that epping time window when you were kind of already planning on making that change yeah so like some guys with six discs run four new discs and two used. Some guys run three new and three used. I, I do the three and three. Okay. So um, you always come up with a dilemma. Do you want to start the season with a completely different clutch pack? <laughs> right. Or, or do you want to kind of phase them in? So, like, we started testing baseline that first two runs were with the exact pack we ran last year, and we had to change a new and a used in the beginning of the year. So we did that the last four runs I think of Gainesville pretest <clears throat> and then we ran those and I think let's see it was Gainesville Phoenix we had to put a different disc in a different used one in Pomona and so then we went a couple events and then we put another one in a new one okay Vegas and then we had to put a new one in before Epping so now that way, when you're changing one at a time, it's usually not a huge application change. Okay, and you can kind of isolate <clears throat> so, things, right? Right, and it keeps you competitive. If you have to change two or three, and say it's 90-degree race surface, you put them in and you do pretty good, and you think you got a handle on it, and then you go where it's 130, <laughs> and they're not the same. <laughs> so I kind of take the approach of kind of feed it, and then also that keeps you in that routine next year, so you're not ever forced to change wholesale yeah make a, a kind of a drastic change and along those lines when you look at where you are in your career now versus when you were first year new crew chief is it decision making like that 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 kind of long-term decision making that are the things that you feel like you've evolved it best into or is it on the personnel side is it is it managing people or is it managing stuff what is what are the areas that you think you've grown the most over the course of your career as a as a crew chief um uh, obviously, I, I mean, I was very blessed, and I had a supercharger for trainers right at Austin and Bernie. <laughs> yes. So um, you, it was like a crash course. I was a sponge trying to absorb everything. So two things that they taught you, manage people and strategy. You have to think strategy. So you don't think about, you know, next week at Norwalk and forget about Denver, Sonoma, Seattle like you're looking at indie test or something like that. So um, both of them are, have been key since I started doing this. And it, as you, the more runs, more data and all that stuff, you start understanding why they, they race like that. And um, so that's kind of the biggest thing that I've worked on. And then of course the people, this is a people driven sport. Yeah. And like, I'm only as good as the guys that are putting it together. Ron's only as good as the guys and me that are doing it. And so having the right people, the right atmosphere um, is everything. You could have the best supercharger guy in the pit on your team and the best short block guy and the best clutch guy. But if there's not continuity, you're not going to win a lot. So it's all about bringing harmony to the people where they want to hang out. 
Yeah, that's a, yeah, it's a great point. It's a great point. And, and, you know, I have to think that there is value in, you know, Ron's life is Napa, right? When Ron is not at the drag strip, he is, he is with Napa people doing Napa things, whether it's in, you know, Hawaii or Iceland or wherever he's off to each and every week. But there has to be, it has to be a neat thing in, in terms of your team dynamic because he has to place complete trust in you, right? He, he does not have the ability to micromanage this, that, and the other thing. And, to me, I think the best people I've ever worked for or worked with are the ones that look you in the eye and, and you look them in the eye and there is a mutual bond or there's a mutual trust there where they don't need to be breathing down your neck every three seconds. And that has to lend itself to the team environment. Right. No, absolutely. And Ron, yeah, I mean, Ron, he worked so hard. I don't think people realize, but like when he goes home from a race, which you see him, he does, you know, like the Bristol Tower Suite autograph sessions. He does, you know, all these yep. different things at the racetrack. He does, um, obviously, the Napa Auto Parts Group that's in our tents. He speaks to them, you know, gives them tours. But he leaves a race, and, like, he got home, you know, yesterday, and he's on a flight tomorrow to Hawaii to work with a bunch of Napa distributors there and stuff like that. And he, like, before Norwalk, he'll probably go somewhere for Napa and do meet you know distributors or or salespeople somewhere else so yeah he has to he just trusts me and i trust him we talk about everything there's like no secrets big thing is just communication and so i think that helps a lot and he's he kind of demands (laughs) that we have fun which that's kind of hard (laughs) to understand right because it's a demanding job but it is high stress environment right so to put it in for perspective like working at jfr we were serious about winning obviously right i mean yeah. went in striver went in his team so <clears throat> like brainerd everybody knows about the zoo at brainerd right yeah. so like there, literally john you know would have a screw chiefs and we were all on on board with it like you know we know you guys go out there but you tomorrow's a race day or a qualifying day you guys need to be back at the hotels by noon and like that is it Okay, if you're out past there, we'll terminate you. And, like, you know guys snuck out. I did. Oh, sure. Like, yeah, okay. (laughs) But, like, the first year that I was with Ron, so we're, you know, Friday night at Brainerd wrapping everything up, and he rolls in with a couple of the Napa people and and some golf carts and stuff like that, and he says, all right, come on, get the guys together. We're going out in the zoo. I'm like, huh? And he says, the whole team, we're going out in the zoo. It's mandatory. I'm like, what? Okay, I'm, I'm good with that. <laughs> right. right, don't threaten me with a good time. Yeah, so, you know, he is. That's why we got to have fun, and people work harder when it's fun. Last thing I want to ask you about, and and this is kind of a perspective question, but, you know, we can look at different times in, in drag racing. We can look at, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, and we can look at, you know, the Yamato Ormsby's battling it out. We can look at the great funny car battles through the, the 90s, the, the great Cruz Pedregon, John Force year of 92, um, the Pro Stock Wars of Warren Johnson and Bob Glidden and, and those names. And we're, we're living in a time period now, and we, we call it the big three, but it really is. We're living in this this unique period that we'll look back on in 10 years and think, man, this was so awesome. But this this period of of Hagen, Caps, and Height, you know, and there are obviously other great players in this mix, but these are the three primaries that we always end up talking about because they end up being the people in the end. So right. how much pride do you take in that? Because this is something that will be long remembered in this sport, and you are right in the thick of it. Well, I mean, it's kind of an honor to be, you know, enlisted with that group, right? I mean, all of them are multiple champions and some of the greatest minds, tuners, and most experienced people putting the cars together on the groups. And I think the one thing that is a little bit different than, or now than then, like uh, Amato and all of that deal is the class is so friggin' tight now (laughs) that they're... There's a dart every week. One of us will get picked off by somebody that you think uh, we will get by this round. And then boom, you're like watching. It's like, holy crap. And <laughs> so that's, it's great that we're battling it out, but yeah. you cannot back up at all. Like I, in the final, <clears throat> it got pretty nervous in the semis when I picked it up and I was like, man, this thing smokes the tires down there. I'm going to be 
upset. Yeah. So I said, I'm going to soften it up just a little bit. I don't want to give this away. And they made a hell of a run <laughs> next to us. Yes, they did. And they gave it away. You cannot lift. There are so many good cars out there right now. It's like crazy. It's like pro stock with nitro. It really is. It really is. It's uh, it's an exceptionally fun thing to watch because uh, guys like you are smart enough to put on uh, put on the show that we all get to revel in. So, uh, Guido, thank you very much, man. Congratulations on the win at Bristol, and um, it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be one hell of a grind for the rest of the year. And, and thankfully, I get to sit in an air conditioned room and yell about it. You guys actually have to work. <laughs> I'm buying stock in Tums, so we're good. <laughs> He's Dean Antonelli, crew chief on the Napa GR Super for on caps. We come back. I'll give you some final thoughts and we'll sign off in this episode of the nhra insider and that'll bring us to the end of this episode of the nhra insider post bristol post epping post wild weekend plan on talking to bob task of the third next week he was actually out in dearborn michigan meeting with the fine people at ford this week so we'll get caught up with our new england nationals winner how could i not it's my home place i got to talk to the guy and we'll continue to get set up for the race in norwalk the summit racing equipment nationals hope you enjoyed this show love when we get to talk to crew chiefs especially Tommy and Mike Green and Guido. They give great answers. The insight that these guys give is really, to me, phenomenal. Talking about the strategic approach to clutch discs, talking about managing a team, talking about working with people, talking about the approach of getting a car down the racetrack under conditions that are not ideal, uh, the rain delays in the middle of the day, stuff like that. To me, it's always a great window into the complexity of professional drag racing, and it is certainly uh, my uh, great pleasure to bring it to you. And I thank those guys for joining us on this show. And uh, let me know what you think of the rant at the top of the show. I stand by every word. I do. I promise. That's that. This episode of The Insider is over. This weekend, I will be in Bowling Green, Kentucky for the Wally Parks Nostalgia Nationals. It is a great event. Uh, Don Garlitz is going to be the Grand Marshal. I'm going to be hanging out with Don Garlitz all weekend, doing some events with him, hosting an event on Friday evening at the Holly Performance Headquarters, which he will be the Grand Marshal of the weekend and the star of the night, of course. There's Cackle Fest, there's Nitro Funny Cars, there's Front Engine Top Fuel Cars, and there's Drag Racing Wall to Wall this weekend in Bowling Green, Kentucky. If you have never been to Beach Bend Raceway in Bowling Green, the only way I can describe it to you is the Fenway Park of Drag Racing. Covered grandstands, this wonderful old school feel, an amusement park attached to the drag strip. All of it is going to be rocking and rolling this weekend. Thousands of show cars, all kinds of vendors, and all kinds of fun around the drag strip. Come and check us out Thursday through Saturday, Beach Bend Raceway Park in Bowling Green, Kentucky. I'll be there. You should, too. And I'll be back right here next week on the NHRA Insider to talk all things Tasca and to talk all things Summit Racing Equipment Nationals with a cast of characters that sometimes pretend to be my friends. Or maybe sometimes I pretend to be theirs. Either way, it's going to be great. Come back and see us next week on the Insider. Thanks.